Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Ambassador Kenneth Taylor and the Canadian caper. And while we're at it, why don't you head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of my novel, Is That Your Final Answer? Now let's continue with our story about the Canadian caper. Ken Taylor was about to have his dedication to international law tested even further. Two weeks after the embassy was attacked, he received a call from the Swedish ambassador. On November 4th, Lee Schatz, the American agricultural attaché in Tehran, was sitting in his office, which was luckily two blocks from the embassy itself. He watched the students scaling the walls and had an embassy radio device which allowed him to listen in on the various transmissions among embassy personnel. Luckily for him, the Swedish embassy was on the fourth floor of his building, so he merely presented himself there and requested asylum. Initially, the Swedes were sympathetic and put him up for the night. When his name appeared on an Iranian most wanted list, they even arranged to move him to the residence of a consular official. For several days, Schatz hid out in plain sight, even going to local markets and walking around his neighborhood without incident. But the Swedes became antsy and did not want to remain in such a potentially compromising situation. Eventually, Ambassador Kai Sunberg called Ken Taylor directly and explained the situation, awkwardly requesting that since the Canadians were so closely linked to the U.S. anyway, perhaps it would be easier for Schatz to blend in with them. Sunberg was stunned when Taylor nonchalantly agreed, mentioning that he was already harboring five Americans. One more would not make a big difference. The next day, Schatz was picked up by Sheardown and driven to his home where he joined Anders and the Lejeks. Neither Ken Taylor or Sheardown hesitated for a moment to add an additional member to their group. On November 18th, the Iranian government suddenly released 13 of the hostages. Exclusively African-Americans or females, these individuals were released with proclamations that as members of a minority group, they were also victims of American imperialism, sympathetic to the suffering of the Iranian people and their victimization by the Shah. This language was accompanied by a threat that if the U.S. resorted to military force, the remaining hostages would be killed, the embassy destroyed, and all other Americans possibly as many as 300 remaining in Iran, would be detained. The Ayatollah himself added that in the event of a U.S. attack, that he could not restrain those occupying the embassy from killing the hostages. Let the Americans try, and we shall wipe them out. We shall die, but we shall kill them all as well. Additional demands for an international tribunal to place Jimmy Carter and former CIA director and former American ambassador to Iran Richard Helms on trial only underlined the difficult road ahead faced by the U.S. in attempting to work out a deal with a government that sounded truly unhinged. 
A new Iranian constitution was approved by national referendum in early December. It officially allowed veto power to the Ayatollah over any potential candidate for high office. The Ayatollah also named Sadegh Gopspadeh, foreign minister, at least identifying an individual within the government who could be approached either directly or indirectly concerning negotiations over the hostages. At the same time, in the U.S., the Shah was deemed healthy enough to leave the country. Despite the turmoil, the Shah was indignant, pronouncing that he did not wish to stay where he wasn't wanted, and the Carter administration certainly wanted him out. Unfortunately, Mexico would not allow him to return, and it took a great deal of diplomacy to finally get Panama and the head of the government, General Omar Torrijos, to admit the Shah. The U.S. pursued a different strategy by appealing to the U.N., the Security Council eventually passing a resolution that the hostages should be released and the embassy returned. Iran ignored this edict. In Canada, a strange political domestic squabble was brewing over the crisis. Pierre Trudeau, the head of the Liberal Party opposition, began berating the Joe Clark government for not doing enough to help the U.S. in resolving the crisis. Trudeau's criticism was so shrill that Prime Minister Clark himself eventually informed the head of the Liberal Party of Canada's involvement in harboring six Americans. Despite this information, Trudeau continued his attacks, behavior that bewildered Clark and Canadian Minister of External Affairs Flora MacDonald, the direct liaison between Taylor and the Canadian political hierarchy. Trudeau's behavior only complicated and an already tense predicament, this second-guessing adding even more pressure to a potentially explosive situation. In the U.S., the Carter administration was faced with a complete lack of intelligence assets or even accurate information. With no other choice, they approached the Canadian government with the request that Ambassador Taylor become a source for American intelligence, literally an American agency asset. Ottawa agreed, and for the rest of his tenure in Iran, Taylor supplied voluminous information about the situation in Tehran, as much logistical and military data as could be secured, and an analysis of the ever-volatile Iranian political situation. His cables went first to Canada, and then directly to Washington and the CIA at Langley. Although serving as a caretaker for the six American escapees was a noble humanitarian gesture, the intel and advice that Taylor eventually provided was of a much greater diplomatic value, and the subsequent exfiltration attempt would have been impossible without both Taylor and the Canadian government's ingenuity, flexibility, and advice. Any attempts by the Carter administration to establish a back channel to Iran failed, and the Soviet Union vetoed sanctions via the UN. Although the U.S. imposed its own sanctions, froze Iranian assets, and encouraged its Western allies to do the same, most other countries refused, and the situation remained stalemated. Much of the information that Taylor provided was incorporated into plans for a military rescue of the hostages. This plan, coordinated under the National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski, eventually became known as Operation Eagle Claw. But in January of 1980, this was still a work in progress and of no help to Taylor's Americans. From day one, Taylor focused on how he could get the six escapees out of Iran. Although recent accounts of their rescue have 
focused on the CIA's involvement in constructing the Argo film cover, and the Hollywood version of this event gives credit almost entirely to CIA agent Tony Mendez, played by Ben Affleck. In fact, without Canadian passports and false identities provided by the Canadian government and intelligence and cooperation from Ken Taylor, this operation would have never even been considered. From the very beginning, Taylor was convinced that the key to getting the Americans out of Iran was to use fake Canadian documentation to sneak them past Iranian immigration. It would be up to experts at the CIA to coordinate the documents and details to make such a group believable. The CIA was not even aware of the escapees until early December, but once informed, they went to work on devising several strategies to get the Americans out. They had little time to lose. Rumors that some Americans were on the loose floated throughout the Iranian press. Kim King had survived a harrowing ordeal, and after paying a fine, he was amazingly allowed to leave Iran. Once home in Oregon, he told a local reporter that other embassy employees had escaped with him, but he did not know who they were or what became of them. The State Department told Lee Schatz's mother that he was safe in an undisclosed location, but forgot to tell her not to tell the press, a local Idaho Falls paper publishing that information. These obscure newspapers were not on the Iranian radar, but the Washington correspondent of Montreal's La Presse, Jean Pelletier, was also able to deduce that some Americans were in Canadian hands. Pelletier's father was the current Canadian ambassador to France, and Pelletier was responsible enough to understand the repercussions if he published the story. For the moment, he and his editor agreed to sit on the scoop, but the next journalist who found out might not be so agreeable. If things were not chaotic enough, in December the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and the conservative government of Joe Clark suffered a no-confidence vote that they narrowly lost due to domestic issues completely unrelated to the hostage crisis. A national election was scheduled for February 18, 1980. In Tehran, the House guests were beginning to wonder if they had been forgotten. Day after monotonous day dragged on, with not even a mention as to when or even if they could ever leave. Understanding the urgency, Joe Clark's government slipped through legislation allowing the creation of six fake Canadian passports, which was technically illegal under Canadian law. Designated by the CIA to work with the Canadian government, Tony Mendez of the agency's Technical Services Division traveled to Ottawa to meet with a Canadian intelligence counterpart to coordinate the assembly of the passports and to interview recently departed Canadian embassy personnel from Tehran regarding procedures clearing immigration and customs at Meribad Airport. These interviews uncovered one significant procedural challenge. When a foreign visitor entered the country, he filled out a disembarkation embarkation form that was a white top sheet and a yellow bottom sheet. The immigration official was to keep the white top sheet the traveler retained the yellow sheet for when they departed the country. An immigration official was to then match both sheets. Obviously, there was no way to forge the original top sheet, even if a yellow sheet with matching fake name could be improvised. Mendez interviewed several recent departees. The consensus that the document collection and cumbersome matching process, a procedure begun by Savak, was only haphazardly adhered to, and most likely not a deal-breaker. Although the fundamental passport concept was relatively easy to implement once the Canadian government agreed to issue these documents, 
creating a fake identity for the Americans was a much more complicated process. Additionally, a fake visa would have to be constructed, as well as driver's licenses, Canadian health cards, and possibly even business cards, depending on what identity was to be assumed by the escapees. Mendez personally faced another challenge. The Canadian legal authorization of fake passports for the benefit of refugees was one thing, but the Canadian government refused to issue him a fake passport as an intelligence operative of a foreign government. He and his associate, a Farsi speaker codenamed Julio, whose actual identity has never been revealed, were on their own. Fortunately, the CIA dealt with this issue frequently, and Mendez would conduct the mission using a fake Irish passport with the name Kevin Costa Harkins. Decisions also had to be made as to who exactly were the Americans going to masquerade as when they left and why they were even in Iran during such a dangerous and volatile time period. The Canadians wanted to stick with something traditional, like the petroleum industry, government nutrition and agricultural analysts, or unemployed teachers. Mendez had another idea, clearly this ingenuity, his best contribution to the escape. What if the six Americans were incorporated in, into a Canadian group of film production company employees on a lengthy location scouting trip for a film with a Middle Eastern theme? Fortunately, Mendez had Hollywood connections he had worked with before. The task force reached a compromise in which the Americans themselves were presented with these various options, and they got to choose which scenario to adopt. Mendez hastily went to Los Angeles, where he spent $10,000 renting an office, staffing it with enough bodies to make sure there was someone at the end of a phone in case the Iranians checked on the ruse. With a Hollywood contact, makeup man John Chambers, Mendez actually selected a film off the slush pile, an unproduced sci-fi fantasy called Lord of Light. It could certainly utilize the exotic locations, but Mendez changed the title to something with more of a Middle Eastern ring to it, Argo. Appropriately, this title actually came from an inside joke between Mendez and his Hollywood friends. Cleaned up, the joke went something like this. Knock, knock. Who's there? Argo. Argo who? Argo F yourself. Chambers was no Hollywood neophyte. He is credited with fashioning Spock's pointed ears in Star Trek and created the prosthetics used in the Planet of the Apes franchise. To help the ruse, Chambers involved another makeup artist, Robert Seidel, to put together publicity receptions, take out advertising in Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, and employ Seidel's wife as the alleged Studio Sixth, the proposed name of the fake production company's receptionist. They helped Mendez put together a collection of bogus storyboards and drawings that could authenticate an actual production. The Canadians were able to successfully get all of the necessary fake documentation into their embassy in Tehran. Roger Lucy, an embassy official, had anticipated such a sensitive situation. So for weeks, he personally retrieved the diplomatic pouch at the airport. Although typically aggressive, the paramilitaries at, at Meribad were by then familiar with Lucy and remained totally uninterested the day this critical parcel arrived. By mid-January, Ken Taylor began to also plan for closing his own embassy. 
He reasoned that if the Iranians determined that the Canadians were responsible for hiding and then aiding the American escape, there would be serious repercussions. With the exfiltration planned for January 27th, Taylor was specifically ordering individuals to leave, with only a handful of staff remaining to quickly and officially temporarily close the embassy. This included John Sheardown and his wife, scheduled to leave on January 19th. The escapees at the Sheardown residence would then be chaperoned by Roger Lucy, slated to be one of the last Canadians to leave with Ken Taylor. Lucy, fluent in Farsi, picked up on a major mistake in the forged documents. The fake visa stamps contained a date that did not take into account that the Persian New Year did not start until the spring solstice. The forged dates on the visa were concocted according to the Western Gregorian calendar, meaning that when the passports were inspected at the airport, they would have a date in the future, not a past date when the holder had supposedly entered the country. This was an egregious error, but at least Mendez, when informed, could bring forging equipment to alter the document into its proper format. A similar mistake dogged the ill-fated subsequent Eagle Claw mission that resulted in an April 24th raid that was aborted after three of the eight helicopters necessary to complete the mission either crashed or malfunctioned. Had the mission continued, the plan actually called for a shock attack on the American embassy and ministry, an extrication of the hostages, and a rendezvous via truck with helicopters outside of Iran. Sunday was chosen as the day of the attack and extrication, as it was believed that traffic, normally a nightmare in Tehran, would be light on a Sunday. Except in Tehran, as in most Middle Eastern countries, Sunday is a work day, and the attack would have been attempted at the height of the rush hour. That the mission was aborted might have been a blessing, as a rescue that bogged down in commuter traffic might have been not only an additional embarrassment, but deadly to all concerned. Mendez and his associate Julio arrived successfully in Tehran on January 25th. They checked into the Sheraton Hotel and spent the rest of the day visiting Swiss Air to confirm the reservations for them and the six escapees and even walked by the embassy to take a look. The next day they proceeded to the Canadian embassy where their immediate task was to address the visa problem which was a relatively simple fix for someone as adroit with such processes as Mendez. One of Taylor's contacts at the New Zealand embassy, a man named Richard Sewell, managed to acquire enough blank disembarkation forms from a contact at British Airways to allow Mendez to work on those forgeries. Since the six Americans were supposedly a film crew that arrived from Hong Kong on a flight within an hour of Mendez's actual flight from Zurich, he forged the disembarkation forms in similar handwriting to the immigration officer who had written on his actual form. On January 27th, Mendez and Julio were driven to the Sheardown house to meet with the American contingent for the first time. Ken Taylor dropped off some suitcases and clothing and left. His wife was leaving that day, and he was scheduled to close the embassy and fly out the next day. At the former Sheardown residence, it was left to Roger Lucy to introduce Mendez and explain to the escapees that they were about to leave. In the film Argo, the Hollywood production company Masquerade is presented as a fate accompli, a solution that is greeted with both incredulity and personal skepticism of Mendez as played by Ben Affleck. 
In actuality, the six were presented with three options. Studio Six, nutritionist academics from the University of Guelph, and a Canadian-created petroleum industry cover. Mendez suggested that he believed that the Argo plan was doable, but it was up to the group to vote among themselves. The only real suspense was selling Joe Stafford and his wife on even leaving at all, the couple feeling that they owed it to their fellow embassy comrades to stay until the crisis ended. The group was aware via Ken Taylor that it was very likely that the Iranians knew generally of their presence somewhere in the city, and it was only a matter of time before they might wind up bound and restrained in the embassy compound like the other hostages. Once the Staffords agreed to leave, they all chose the film company Roos. Each American was given specific and detailed information about their cover story and much of the rest of the day to read and commit it to memory. Mendez deliberately gave the escapees only a brief period before their departure, as to not to increase their anxiety. In the late afternoon, Roger Lucy and Mendez grilled them with hostile questions likely to be thrown at them by an immigration official, and then everyone sat down to dinner accompanied by every drop of wine and liquor in the house. Except for two helpful New Zealanders who were present, this was the last night in Iran for the others, and whatever anxiety was in the air was soon dispelled by the boatload of alcohol that was consumed. Mendez and Julio left at midnight to get some sleep, as they were due to get up at 2.15 a.m. One of the New Zealanders drove them to the Sheraton. Richard Sewell was scheduled to pick them up to take them to the airport at 3 in the morning, where they were to meet the rest of the group. Mendez and Julio and all six of the Americans were scheduled for Swiss Air Flight 363, scheduled to depart at 6 a.m. This time was deliberately chosen, the airport still sleepy and quiet early on a Monday morning. If fabricating history in a Hollywood film was an Olympic event, the 2012 film Argo, starring Ben Affleck, would have cruised to a gold medal. One fundamental digression from reality throughout the film was the minimization of Ken Taylor and the Canadian government's role in the rescue to the extent that the country aiding Mendez and the CIA might just as well have been Bulgaria. But the drama in the last scenes of Argo includes Mendez meeting with members of an Iranian cultural commission to get permission to film in Iran. They demand a meeting in the Tehran Bazaar with Iranian officials who want to meet directly with the entire film crew a lengthy disembarkation process at the airport in which Iranian paramilitaries completely dissect film-related material, grill the crew on the film's details, and actually call and make contact with the Studio 6 office in Hollywood, and a last-minute reassembly of an embassy personnel photo that is matched up to surveillance footage taken at the bazaar of one of the American women. This reassembly tips off the Iranians that one of the alleged film crew is in fact an American, setting off a frantic race to Meribad by Iranian secret police, paramilitaries that eventually crash through glass doors, leap into trucks and police cars, and chase the Boeing jetliner down the tarmac. The departing jet narrowly avoids vehicles attempting to swerve in front of the airplane as it finally alights just out of the grasp of its fiendish antagonists who must slam on the brakes, mere feet in front of a runway retaining wall. It is probably a tribute to the audacity of Tony Mendez and the incredibly methodical preparation and detailed analysis of the disembarkation process by Ken Taylor and his staff that not a single frame of the tense drama 
presented in the finale of the film Argo ever took place. In fact, the only obstacles the Americans had to overcome had nothing to do with anything related to the plan itself. When Richard Sewell arrived at the Sheraton to pick up Mendez, the agent had actually overslept, and when called from the lobby, he and Julio pulled it together quickly. Fortunately, by 3.15, they were out the door. The plan called for the Americans to be driven to the airport in embassy cars festooned with Canadian flags. When they arrived, Mendez, who had already checked in and scoped out the area, saw nothing amiss and signaled Julio, who then escorted the group into the terminal. Although terribly hungover, the Americans' first step at the Swiss Air check-in counter was easy, and the group then collectively headed for a more difficult challenge, an official emigration checkpoint. Lee Schatz had gotten a little ahead of the group and then also diverted into a shorter non-smoking line. As a result, he got to the officer in the checkpoint a little ahead of, but completely visible to Mendez and the rest of the group. The official barely glanced at Schatz's passport, accepted his yellow disembarkation form without matching it up, and waved the agricultural attaché through. Everyone else cleared immigration without any problem, including Mendez and Julio. The group attempted to remain inconspicuous in the departure lounge, wary of several heavily armed revolutionary guards leaning against the walls. But these individuals were too sleepy to even provide perfunctory harassment. The only other issue turned out to be a delay caused by an airplane equipment malfunction that was estimated to be an hour. Mendez knew from experience that these delays can occasionally drag on for half a day or longer without warning. Luckily, Ken Taylor had even purchased tickets for the group on another later flight on British Airways, and although it would necessitate going through another checkpoint, this was an option. But the New Zealander Richard Sewell had hung around to see if the group got out okay. He contacted his buddy at British Airways, who did confirm that the delay was in fact only going to be an hour, so the group decided to stay put. Although it seemed like an eternity and only a few extra minutes, the flight was called and the group boarded a bus to take passengers across the tarmac. Everyone walked up the metal staircase, found their seats, and waited for takeoff. As the plane accelerated down the runway, a feeling of euphoria swept over Mendez, aware that he had pulled off an operation so daring and monumental that he eventually was awarded the CIA's Intelligence Star, a decoration for valor that has been presented to only a few dozen recipients, most posthumously. For the six other American escapees, they would not officially celebrate for two more hours until the plane entered Turkish airspace. When the pilot eventually made this announcement, many other passengers accompanied them in enthusiastic shouts and applause. Clearly, they were not the only passengers undergoing a nerve-wracking escape. Back in Tehran, Richard Sewell phoned Roger Lucy to tell him that the Americans were safely out of the country. Lucy immediately called Ken Taylor, gave him the news, and the two both made their way to the embassy. Once there, they sent diplomatic cables to their Ottawa government, the U.S. State Department, and the CIA with a bulletin. Even though it was 2 a.m. Ontario time, direct phone calls were made to individual government officials, especially Minister Flora MacDonald, who had personally done so much at the highest levels to ensure the mission's success. The call was brief. Minister, they're out. Relieved, she quickly fell back asleep. Another hard day of campaigning awaited in the morning. 
after the four remaining Canadian embassy officials remaining in Tehran got word that the plane had safely landed in Zurich, they began the final process of closing the embassy. Claude Gauthier, the last security guard left, would receive the permanent nickname of Sledge for his manual destruction of the Canadian cipher machine and other sensitive communications equipment into hunks of useless metal. Encryption officer Mary O'Flaherty helped destroy any sensitive documents that no one wished the Iranian government to possess. Taylor's final administrative act was to post a tierce note on the embassy front door. The Canadian embassy is temporarily closed. Then it was off to a lengthy lunch and finally a flight of all four to Copenhagen, Denmark. There they checked into a hotel and went to sleep, Roger Lucy having been awake for over 60 consecutive hours. At the time, Lucy and Taylor figured they might be gone for a week or two, and then they would return to Iran. It was the intent of the CIA and the U.S. government to keep the escape of the six former embassy personnel a secret until the crisis was resolved, and upon reaching Zurich, the six were informed that they would be headed for a comfortable but required internment at an Air Force base in Florida. They especially did not want any connection to the escape made to the CIA, as it was felt that this might enrage the Iranians and endanger the other hostages. But when Jean Pelletier heard the announcement that the Canadian embassy in Iran was temporarily closing, he figured that the Americans were successfully out of the country. After calling his contacts within the Canadian government and getting only another meek request that he not publish the story, Pelletier and his editors decided to go with it. By Tuesday morning, the six escaped Americans were a worldwide sensation. When Ken Taylor got off his flight to Paris on Wednesday, January 30th, he was puzzled by the mob of media waiting to greet the passengers. He was confused until a Paris embassy colleague explained the situation and that the media was there to track him down. He was whisked out of a back emergency exit via prior arrangement and taken to the Canadian embassy. There, he met privately with his wife. The next day, he greeted the world press at a news conference at the embassy. Saying very little other than pleasantries, he revealed nothing about the exfiltration, indicating that others might still be at large in Iran. With the story now revealed, the six escapees' initial mandatory Florida vacation plan was canceled. Instead, the group was flown from Germany to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware and then transported to a raucous reception at the State Department building in Washington, D.C., where Bob Anders read a statement on behalf of the group that emphasized the Canadian diplomatic contribution and their profound and eternal gratitude. The six then traveled to the White House, where they met personally with Jimmy Carter. Wearing Canadian flag lapel pins, they also presented the president with his own pin in solidarity. Carter also directly phoned Prime Minister Joe Clark, thanking him profusely for Canada's unwavering and unconditional courage and support. Across America, an outpouring of gratitude and appreciation was uniformly expressed by the public and throughout the media. Ken Taylor and his wife eventually returned to Canada, an instant celebrity. The CIA privately expressed a desire to leave them completely out of any discussion of their role, and Taylor deflected any questions about specific identities or tradecraft. Taylor was actually given the official assignment of publicizing Canada's role in the rescue, spending six months appearing all over North America on television, at civic celebrations, and providing interviews discussing the incident. 
Throughout, he mentioned his supportive staff and the backing at the highest levels of government. When asked repeatedly and specifically, he also denied that the CIA was involved whenever asked about their potential role in the rescue. Unfortunately, despite the immediate diplomatic sugar buzz of the exfiltration, the 53 American hostages remained in Tehran. Joe Clark's government was defeated in February, Clark refusing to exploit the positive PR generated by what became known as the Canadian caper. In Iran, Foreign Minister Gotspadeh and newly elected President Abul Hassan Bani Sadr responded positively to clandestine feelers from the Carter administration and internal Iranian politics began to shift towards the students relinquishing control of the hostages to more moderate government officials. But the Ayatollah threw cold water on this idea, stating that the Iranian parliament would decide the fate of the hostages, a legislative body not scheduled to meet for four months. Finally, Jimmy Carter personally got fed up and imposed sanctions on Iran, severed all diplomatic ties with the country, and privately became more enthusiastic about a military solution. Not only did the subsequent April 24th Eagle Claw mission fail, eight military personnel were killed, American helicopters and equipment were left behind and became Iranian trophies of war. The Carter administration continued to be perceived as an international symbol of incompetence and indecision. From then on, it was clear that any solution would involve diplomacy. The death of the Shah in July, the Iraqi invasion of Iran in late September, and the landslide victory of Ronald Reagan either sidetracked the hostage talks or prompted the Iranians to prolong the process. Despite a tentative agreement being worked out in December, it would not be until minutes after Ronald Reagan was inaugurated that the hostages were released. Even then, it was the Iranian need for military spare parts for their war with Iraq and the urge to get at the $8 billion of frozen assets in U.S. bank accounts that prompted Iran to finally agree to a deal. The Iranians waited until the final moments of Carter's presidency to actually release the hostages, a last humiliation of a man they despised. The CIA role in the Canadian caper was declassified in 1997. Tony Mendez wrote about it extensively, initially in an in-house CIA journal and then in his own books. The story remained under the radar until 2007 when Wired magazine published an account of the Argo aspects of the rescue. The article was immediately optioned by George Clooney, and from then on it was only a matter of time before the Canadian caper was mined for Hollywood gold. One of the nuggets from Mendez's original journal account was that the rollout of Studio 6 was so convincing that during its brief operation, it received dozens of resumes from experienced film creatives, as well as 26 scripts seeking production, including one from an up-and-coming director named Steven Spielberg. In the immediate aftermath of the Canadian caper, Ken Taylor was given the plum assignment of Consul General in New York. But by 1984, despite both Canadian political parties encouraging him to run for office, Taylor left the public sector to accept a key position with R.J. Nabisco, run by his Canadian friend, Ross Johnson. This would place Taylor front and center for the wild leverage buyout struggle over Nabisco, a struggle Johnson eventually and famously lost. Ken Taylor then started his own worldwide consulting firm that he operated for two decades, 
and also served as a chancellor at the University of Toronto. He died of cancer on October 15, 2015. Kenneth Taylor remains the only Canadian to receive the American Congressional Gold Medal, the highest civilian award the U.S. government can bestow. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Canadian Ambassador Kenneth Taylor. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Our Man in Tehran by Robert Wright and Argo, How the CIA Pulled Off the Most Audacious Rescue in History by Antonio Mendez. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com as well as information about my new novel, Is That Your Final Answer? If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <music>